Knock, knock, guess who is knocking at your door? That's right, you know it's the morning for sure. Might be a geoff, it could be. Maybe it's been around me. No, you love this week in Mormons, original Mormon news. If you love Lindsay Sterling, Bryce Harper in Utah, and cello salad foods, oh, you're gonna love this show. Hey, everybody, welcome to This Week in Mormons. It's wonderful of you to join us this week. I am Jeff Openshaw, your intrepid and dedicated host and founder of This Week in Mormons. Uh, thankful that you're here with us this week. And I'm joined this week by none other than Leroy Jenkins. I would like to clarify that I have never pulled a Leroy Jenkins in my life. But this, okay. is, Jared, this is Jared Gillins. It's Jared uh, Gillins, everybody. Can I also I just, be intrepid? I've always wanted to have that label. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, you you are. You've been upgraded to co-host. Per, in your, per, per your mail recently. so That's true. So to clarify, dear listeners, um, as you may know, sometimes Jeff and I, uh, not well, I was going to say we review books, but not really. We, we, interview, we try to interview authors of books uh, that are Mormon adjacent or Mormon appropriate to, or t- appropriate to the show. And uh, so every once in a while, uh, University Press will send us a free reviewer's copy of the of some of these books and uh, recently i received a book in the mail i can't even remember what the title was or who wrote it something about joseph smith and uh about but yeah democratization in the church it's by a byu professor I, so which is great it's right my, it's right up both our alleys actually democratization in the church it's something that we maybe we should check it out anyway the the address label said jared gillens hyphen co-host and i was so happy I'm so happy to be a co-host. The sad thing is I'm so obsessed with like COVID germs that I pretty much open up mail like that and just like fish out the actual parcel and then just trash the envelope as quickly as I can. So I don't even know what mine said. Did it say co-host? Did it say host? Like I care about my title. How do they regard me? Who do they think I am? Now I don't even know. Oh, that's interesting. So my methodology for that was uh, I, I was like, what is this package? And I ripped it open, you know, and looked at it. I was like, oh, it's the book. And then I put it into, we have like a little mail rack by our, in our little entryway. I yeah. put it in the mail rack and I went and thoroughly washed my hands. And then I just left it in the mail rack. And I, cause you know, they, they say, I think the virus can live on like cardboard for like 24 hours or something like yes. that. Anyway, it's been sitting there for a week. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the packaging is sterile by now. I it should go, be fine. Now. I can go. I can go retrieve the book without having to thoroughly scour my hands. Yeah, we get when we get Amazon packages. If they're like okay sized, we just leave them in the box and put them on top of the fridge for a day. Yeah, so we generally do. Too. We just kind of put it in that little entryway area and just leave it to the side and just deal with it later. Yep. I can Unless wipe we, down know. so much stuff. Unless it's got something perishable in it or something. This does lead me to a bit of vindication that I had over social media. It's not often like you can argue about something on social media and then be just absolutely reaffirmed that you were correct and then rub it in everyone's face. But and while I want to be a a, a polite winner, um, Jared, I think you saw my post about this. So I did. No, please. Last, I, you last, deserve this. last week. Last week, the CDC did update a web page and the web page basically said the virus they up they it's the main page about how the virus spreads and 
The main section, of course, talks about interpersonal contact is the driving force behind spreading the virus. We know that. That's why we're all trying to socially distance and everything. And then there's a subsection that's changed a bit over time. And they updated the name of that section to say something like the virus doesn't spread easily in other ways. That was the heading of the section, the H2 tags, if you will. But within that, the body text was basically had been unchanged since March. Really, it still said the exact same thing. It just and what was talking about was surfaces. It said an infected person or a person could touch an infected surface, and if you touched an orifice on your body somewhere, you could still get the disease. While this is possible, it's not the primary means of the most common way the disease is transferred, more or less, which makes perfect sense. They're saying obviously this isn't the main way you're going to get something, but it could still happen, even if it's more remote than having someone who's infected sneeze at you, right? Um, Now, because they changed the headline, people took to social media like crazy last Thursday, Friday, whatever it might be, basically saying, see, see, you don't need to wipe down groceries. We can touch whatever we want. And and as you might imagine, a lot of this was uh, on the the, the, uh, quarantine doubting group of society, arguing, you you see everyone, you see this is fine. And I tried to say, folks, you got to read past that because that text that explains the transmission has not changed since March. You can use the Wayback Machine, everybody. You can the, Most of the internet is archived, you see. And if you go to the Wayback Machine, type in a URL, assuming that URL itself hasn't changed, it'll show you old versions of that that have been cached. And if you look at that, even back to March 28th, it had the same message. So all they did was change the headline for it. But the actual analysis was the same thing. Well, and, and then at the end of that story, isn't, isn't it that they changed the heading yes. back? Yeah, that's what I was getting to. So then just the other day, they changed it back. But first, they put out an extra article that explained because of confusion and people jumping to incorrect conclusions, they've changed it back. So it does not say the virus does not transmit easily this way. So you could argue, hey, maybe they shouldn't have put up that headline in the first place. That was not quite as suave as it they could have been uh, to be safe. But I saw that and I was so happy because I said, oh, everyone, everyone. Well, I get it. A- like we, you want to read good news and we all want to project good news and we want to see something that says, great, we've learned something cool about the virus. We can touch surfaces and we're not going to get sick. That would be great news if that was completely true and we'd all be happy about it. But that doesn't make it true just because we want it to be true. Well, and especially relevant and- because I saw, you know, you posted that article or, you know, that update about all everything that you just described you you put that on your personal feed on facebook but meanwhile in the this week in mormons feed on facebook there was a rather um boisterous debate going on in the comments underneath one of the articles that you had posted about um you know so i guess maybe this maybe we're talking about this now yeah yeah what's up there's been a lot of talk about going back to church and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the first presidency has sent out instructions and details about phased plans and things like that. And, and you, I believe, yeah, it was you, you were the the author of that particular article on the TWIM website. Um, I, by the way, I accidentally, I accidentally shared this article with my work team today. I, I it was like the last thing I control seed. And oh. I thought I, I thought I control seed something else that I was going to go share. And when I hit control V, I just pasted it. And I was like, that's not it. And then they all started reading my, it was great. That's anyway, funny. continue. But yeah, so you had posted this article about um, the need to, well, not the need, but the, well, I guess the need as you see it to employ professional cleaning in our chapels, not only just for the basic cleanliness of our chapels, which one could argue has suffered uh, over the last 
two decades since we went all member <laughs> cleaning. But also specifically for this time of pandemic, when we really need to know, you know, our, our places are clean, our surfaces have been disinfected. We, you know, we, to have that confidence, we should bring back uh, professional cleaning. And then the people in the comments, some of them anyway, some of the people, the unwashed masses in the comments were railing against this idea and using that the CDC uh, thing, yeah, CDC trivia, which was incorrect yeah. or incorrectly interpreted or incorrectly read and understood trivia to say, no, we don't need professional cleaners in our chapels because see, it doesn't transmit on surfaces. Now, now, one thing which is fair about this is I think it's completely fair to argue if we have church on Sunday and then no one else goes to the building for the rest of the week, you can pretty much assume the virus that might be in the building is going to die in the next six days before much you go like back. on my, the packaging of my book yes i think that's that's fair that's fair but considering here we're looking at a scenario where you're asking us to dilute the number of members who are present for whatever kind of meeting you hold um so that means you have to have more actual meetings during the day and they expect us to sanitize in between the sessions mm-hmm. uh and, and that goes even beyond just the fact that I think even weekly we should have actual professional cleaners that are doing their thing. I mean, who's going to be responsible for cleaning the building between sessions like that? Well, and if, you have you put- if you have 99 people there and then what, 90 of them leave and nine people stay behind or something to try to clean up? Like who's going to do that? What what materials are they going to have? Who, who's right? Well, I, and, well, and you talked about this in your article too, but the, the materials that we have are those – clear plastic spray bottles that you fill with water and drop a little dissolvable plastic sp- bit of, you know, two te- two tablespoons of solution into it, which obviously is not a 70% alcohol solution <laughs> or a chlorine bleach based solution or anything like that. Uh, what is the disinfecting power of the weird pink or blue packet that is found in the janitor's closet? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> And that's not to say we're not, we can't acquire those materials. So, I mean, my main thesis here wasn't just that we need to do this. It was that the church's guidelines to reopen, while good and noble, and I think overall it's smart, they're trying to give a lot of runway for localities to figure out what, what's going to work best for them. And mm-hmm. I think that makes sense because even though the virus transmits and kills with impunity, you know, we're facing different regulations and situations around the world. So that makes perfect sense to me. Sure. But I thought this is one area where the church could have said, here's the thing, everyone, you figure out how you're going to reopen, but it is incumbent on all of you to use X grade of cleaning materials and to hire professional cleaning services. And the church is going to back you up on that. Like we need, you can figure out how you implement it, but this standard needs to be adhered to. However you figure out how to do it is your business. Let's talk a little bit more about the, some of these guidelines, right? So, um, but so you mentioned already that it's varying region by region, right? So, like obviously Alexandria or you know Virginia or Fairfax County, where we have not only high population density but also high incidence and relatively high death rate compared to some places uh, of the virus. That's not going to be the same as like Bonneville County, Idaho where while some people have been affected, there have been zero fatalities. And so I could see stake and area leaders in, in Bonneville County saying, hey, this isn't, hasn't been hitting us as hard. It's not as big of a deal here. We might want to like, transition to phase one. Whereas here in Alexandria, in our stake, we've, it's already been made clear to us, we are not anywhere near phase one. We will continue to have home church for now. So it makes sense that you know it varies region by region. What were some of the other 
So if you are entering phase one, what were some of these guidelines? So the church's guidelines uh, for phase one, I define phase one means like what, what you'd assume there's a phased in approach. Let's find the more detailed stuff here from the actual. I mean, program. we don't have to go phase so, by phase. Like, but, yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, because phase two isn't really much of a phase. So <laughs> phase two basically means we're back to normal pursuant to local guidelines. But other than that, the church is saying, do whatever you want as long as the, your municipality is okay with it. So if you live in a municipality that says, everything's great, go back to normal, and you've met the criteria for phase two, then you also are back to normal at church. So phase two is unattainable in many cases. Um, so in phase one, though, you're supposed to have shortened meetings. I don't love that the church did not go quite as far as to specifically say, don't have Sunday school or any other classes. They kind of hinted at it. And I get it. You want to leave that up to local decision makers, but at mm-hmm. the same time, maybe just say, just have a shortened sacrament meeting. That's all you need to do right now. Well, the That's emphasis it. in the article, as I remember it, was on meetings that involve ordinances. So they they talked specifically about like baptisms, and then they talked specifically about sacrament meeting because these are the me- these are the what what we would term the essential meetings of the church, right? Where we're making covenants, renewing covenants, um, you know. The, the the core parts of the the doctrinal reasons for assembling. Exactly. Um, so the main stipulations, uh, up to 99 individuals in one of these sacrament meetings. Uh, of course, like we said, make them shorter, use remote technology if you can. Um, beyond that, it's kind of the gist of it. They say, you know, like if whether you wear masks is just more up to your local leadership, how you have the sacrament and do so safely. They offer some examples and ideas, uh, some things that we've been talking about for quite a long time on here, honestly, like make people sit every other row so that the priest passing the sacrament or the deacon passing the sacrament uh, can go in the rows in between, which to me personally still leaves some question marks in terms of appropriate social distancing, right? Because like, how long are the arms of this deacon? Right. Does the deacon have six foot long arms? I mean, some um, of them are really gawky, and you know their arms are a little disproportionately long. Yeah, you know, yeah, compared, yeah. You know, because they're they're just going through a growth phase. There's a few of them that look like Jack Skellington, but by and large, it's a little bit uh, not quite there. And they talk about they talk about sanitary procedures. You know, wipe down anything that's a common surface. You know, microphones, pulpits, fountains, light switches, doorknobs, all that. The, the one that I can't really cleaning the sacrament trays between meetings. Yes. And I, and I appreciate I, that because I don't think that ever happens. When was the last time you saw a sacrament tray get washed? No. And the funny thing is a long, a long time ago on the show before COVID started happening in March, we noted when they updated the handbook. And I think you and I have been talked about the handbook updates a bit on the show. Mm-hmm. And one of those things we found in the handbook well before any of this happened was the guidance for those passing the sacrament, not just the priests blessing it, to sanitize their hands before they did so. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen that followed in my life, right? It's funny that that standard was actually there in the handbook before any of this went down. See, when I was a priest, um, well, I remember when, my, when I first you know, started blessing the sacrament, we had the little hand sanitizer wipes that you, know, that you could order from distribution. They were always there underneath the yeah. sacrament table. And it was always like, I, that was one of the first things they taught me when, when I was getting ready to bless the sacrament. It was like, first thing you do, you pull this out, you clean your hands, you know, before we break the bread, before we do anything else. So I, see, we, I, I was, I was trained that way. I think we had, but we had it. I never saw anybody passing ever clean their hands. And then even for, even for the blessing, I think we had like a little communal little bowl of water and all the priests would just kind of like dip their hands in it and be like, I'm clean. 
And, uh, that doesn't sound very clean. Well, it was California. You know, as people go there to convalesce, the d- diseases aren't as bad there. So, uh, but the other thing about the sacrament, they recommend just spacing out the bread on the trays. I mean, that's like, I get it, but no. No. I'm not there on that one. I just, I don't see how that's going to help. Even if just the deacon is one holding the tray, people are still going to reach their hands in. There's, there's just, how is something not going to have a risk of transmission? So I have a radical, I just don't Can I suggest a radical idea? Yes. Is this a forum for that? Okay. So as as far as I have read in the Doctrine and Covenants, from what I can see, there is nothing actually stipulated in the doctrine, in the revelations about how the sacrament is prepared. We know what it has to consist of, bread and wine, now water, right? So, but other than that, there's nothing actually about like, and you have to have it on these trays and, you know, the priest has to break it or or the teacher has to lay it out. There's nothing, there's no role for priesthood in the actual preparation of the sacrament, only in the blessing and administration of the sacrament. So, I propose... Every family brings their own slice of bread. And when they say the prayer, the, the prayer applies to all bread in the room. And everybody can partake of the sacrament without having to have a tray passed. Is that too that. radical? Is Am I rocking the boat here? I'm okay go- with that. I mean, am my I idea. Upset the good ship Zion? My idea has been all about like Eucharist style, where we line up and instead the priest just like hands us our piece of bread hey move on i think that works too but you know there would be a whole lot of pushback because we'd look too protestant or catholic if we did that there'd be something like that i like that idea i don't mind it i would especially like it if we went the extra mile in in typical sacrament fashion where we kept the bread covered like on our lap and then when it was time they said now everyone please unveil your your bread and we all like lift up our little handkerchief to show the bread on our lap i'm okay I don't think it's the worst idea. I don't think there's anything to proscribe such an action. In a church where one of our favorite explanations is, it's not a doctrine, it's a policy. (laughs) This is the poster child for it's not a doctrine, it's a policy. We can very easily change the policy to bring your own and we'll bless it. And the ordinance will count for anything that we've, that, you know, the family has brought for their sacrament uh, offering. You could even call it that, you know, and, uh, and then we solve the, the issue of dirty hands. I think it's a good idea, Jared. I don't mind this one bit. I think you're coming from a good a good place. Thank you, sir. On this so, one. Um, one thing that you mentioned uh, a minute, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned that it doesn't really say anything about uh, requiring or, or asking people to wear face masks. But one thing that's interesting, if you look on the the Church News, uh, the article, they have a couple of pictures, and in yeah. each picture, everyone's wearing a mask. Which is, I hadn't noticed that before when I was preparing for this episode. And in one of them, I really like, you know, it shows like a woman speaking at the pulpit. And you can tell even from behind that she and the, the bishopric member sitting behind her, they're wearing masks, even though their backs to us. But you can kind of see that yeah, profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in the, out in the congregation, there are people, in, I'm assuming they're seated by family. And there's like a family. And then three rows away is another family. And then the, uh, the next family is like off on the side, you know, the little you know, side pews. And then there's like another family, maybe two pews ahead, two rows ahead of them. So anyway, everyone's at least two, if not three pews apart from each other. And they're all wearing masks. And I think, you know, that's nice that they modeled that. It would be even nicer if they had said something about it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, and I'm also very worried 
that a lot of local leaders are going to say, yeah, you need to wear masks. In some places, they'll be their hands will be tied. Like if you're going to go to church in Los Angeles, if they start rolling this out, LA County, for example, requires you to wear masks when you're outside. Like period, right. you could yes. be gardening. You could be gardening outside, and you have to wear a mask right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if they don't, and you're just encouraged to do so, I believe, given what I've seen so far over the past two and a half months, that there will be a decent sized subset who believe the masks are an infringement upon rights and will refuse to wear the mask even if asked to do so. Do you think even if the the president of the church who people who we regard as a prophet, seer, and revelator, if he said, I want, I, I ask you all to wear masks, that people would buck against that still? Well, last year, the president of the church said, don't you can't bring guns to church anymore. And how many people said, yeah, okay. Oh, that's true. I guess, yeah, it's follow the prophet until he infringes upon my constitutional rights as i yeah, understand them i guess pretty much something like that so i like to think people would go along with it but i'm really worried there are going to be many who say no way am i doing that and then it's really a question of does the church or the local leaders like enforce it and say well we love you and we want you here but if you can't get on board with this then i'm sorry like you cannot come to this meeting like it is required i feel like i've never seen leaders have that much backbone in situations like this to just tell people, sorry, you can't come to church. Uh, so I don't know, but at the same time, people without masks just start showing up and refuse to do so. Then yeah. those who are uncomfortable with the maskless are going to feel like they can't come to church and they're just not going to. And then I'm really worried that the council we receive in doctrine and covenants 38, you know, if you are not one, you are not mine is going to be tested pretty heavily. And it's going to be hard for us not to become, you know, some ites, like it says in fourth Nephi. That's true. I mean, that's something that unfortunately that goes on regardless, but you're right. uh, Yeah. It would be one more faction to add, you know, into the the body of the church. Yeah. So that's something that worries me just a little bit. I hope it doesn't come to that, but I'm really worried that that's going to go down. One more. I mean, we should probably move on from this because we have we have other things to talk about that aren't the virus, stupid virus. <laughs> the but totality I, of virus discussions <laughs> I've had since March on this show could fill. Well, you entire- can't get away from it, but that doesn't mean no, we have to go no, the you can't. Time, right? But uh, on these same lines, and and uh, I, you know, I mentioned this to you before the show, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Michael Austin. Uh, one of the perma bloggers over at by common consent, he wrote a post a few days ago called a two-step program was a two-step program for going back to church. And he talked for uh, about exactly what we've, we've been talking about. He thinks there should be a requirement for masks and for, for the obvious reasons. I mean, uh, obvious if you're reading and listening to uh, CDC and NIH and those types of people that it just helps if everybody's wearing a mask, the, the chances of conveying it, the virus to someone else goes much, you know, down a whole lot. So, so he said, you know, that's one that was his first step in the two step. And the other one was super interesting. And it's another one that I really think would get pushed back, but he suggested that there should be no singing. Um, Mm. And and that Mm. is based on just some of the anecdotal evidence that we've seen of like choir practices, you know, that were, that happened early on before uh, the, the, before, you know, this government started intervening on intervening on public gatherings but you know we've seen instances where one person who is carrying the virus shows up to a choir practice and then like everyone in the choir leaves infected because singing is very plosive like you know you're 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 exhaling with gusto <laughs> and and uh with that exhale comes a lot of you know saliva particles and the virus and so singing in church even if you're wearing a mask becomes a liability 
because you're much more likely to spread and share the virus with your neighbors. So I thought that was super interesting mm-hmm. that he said that out of anything, everything that he could have said, he chose wear masks and don't sing. And we're such, I mean, music is such not, I mean, it's an important part. I think of all most, almost all Christian worship, but it's very important to us as well. We believe that songs are our prayers and to cut them out. I mean, we wouldn't have to cut out all music obviously, but no, like, of course to cut not. out singing would be, a really big shift in our meetings and it would be interesting. But like I said, I think there would be pushback and he even uh, prefaced his article by saying, I don't think either of these things are going to happen, but I think it's worth talking about. So I don't know. I thought that was worth mentioning on the show. I'm going to bring it up in my ward council. I think you should. Yeah. I, will. I, think we sh- I think we should all at least be talking about it. Even if it's going to be rejected for one reason or another, I think it needs to be discussed. And that's an important bit of advice in general, because so often we're in leadership meetings, those of us who have been, and some people stay silent because they don't think their idea is going to go anywhere, but like it needs to be said. Like anyway, like so those discussions need to happen because it's valuable. And sometimes I've seen it has mattered. And uh, don't ever be quiet, people, unless you're a woman, in which case, remember, remember, President Ballard doesn't want you to speak too much, not too much. Uh, Take it come on. Come Take on. We've moved past that. We've moved past that. I'm just teasing him. Um, for some reason, thinking about all this singing and spitting. Did you ever see that Friends episode with Gary Oldman? Oh, yes. And like, yeah, they're like <laughs> spitting each other. Joey and him are like on a, in a movie together, right? How, how has no one made memes of that yet during yeah, all of this? Spitting in each other's face. Yeah. All right. There might be a couple of things we get back to with some COVID, but let's pivot real quick to some temple news. One of, you know, one of good old Jeffy's favorite areas. Uh, we've updated the number of opening temples now to 66. Execute order 66. Uh, 14 temples uh, start phase one on June 1st. So once again, a bunch of new temples. Just uh, I'm not even going to give you the exhaustive list here. If, as a reminder, though, phase one means it's for living, husband and wife ceilings by appointment only. And you already and, have to be endowed to do it. And you have to follow local guidelines on yes. the size of a gathering. So you might only be able to have you know 10 or fewer people in the room. Yeah. And I think the logic behind any of these is a lot of these follow local guidelines, you know, because if you were to look at just this list of the temples that are opening or have opened already, it just seems like it's almost at random. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I imagine most of it's just following what's actually gone down. With, well, and, it, and as I didn't read through the entire list, but a lot of the ones that I saw were in, in that phase one of temple opening. They were in like, again, places like Bonneville County or, you know, some of the lower density yeah. places. Not all of them though. Some of them were in Utah. Like in like, wasn't uh, Utah County among them? Oh and, no, a lot of, like Provo and Provo city center have been open since May for May 11th. Yeah. Like, so a lot of the, a lot of the heavy areas have it. Yeah. So that's why I'm really curious to see if Utah spikes. It's been two weeks now. So we'll see. I hope not. Well, they've never flattened their curve. It hasn't been as drastic as some other places, but th- their curve has continued to go up. So I don't know. We'll see if it, Virgi- it Virginia's curve has kind of plateaued back up. Do you see? There was a while someone joked on um, on Facebook that Virginia's curve was now in the shape of Virginia. <laughs> it, no, the we'll curve looked just again. it looked just like that, and now it, it's it's kind of got back up again. Five hundred so cases in one day. It's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. Um, But other quick, fun temple news here. So we've got some new temple renderings. I love it when temple renderings come out. Always fun to discuss these things. It's just, no, it's just how a temple looks. I understand it has no bearing on the value of the work done therein, right? It's great. But it's just from an architectural perspective and from an urban planning perspective, 
it's fun to talk about the way temples are designed and why they are what they well are. and i think it's good because like it's especially with these you know country uh temples that are in places like guatemala and japan i think having mindful architectural renderings that respect the area and the culture that there that you know that it's going to be placed among i mean again you're, you're not going to have like you know an lds temple that looks like a shinto temple or anything like that but you know but but still by giving a nod to the local culture i think that's a sign of respect i think it's a way to uh show that we're trying to respect the culture that we're placing this temple among and it's just i think it's a good way to kind of bless the community like you said we could have it could just be you know it, they could buy up an old pizza hut and, you know, turn you know the pizza hut into a temple. But I think, uh, it'd be know, the first temple with a functional cafeteria in decades. Hey, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I just chose that because there's so many places that obviously used to be a pizza hut. But, um, the, the point is that, you know, there's one by your house. That's still a pizza hut, which has always blown my mind. It's true. The, yeah. The hut they that remains a-, a hut. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, they actually recently did a lot of remodeling, so the out- outside actually looks quite different, but it's still, you can tell, it's a Pizza Hut. Uh, anyway, the point is, like you said, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It could be a Pizza Hut on the outside and a temple on the inside, but I think that conscientious and thoughtful design makes it more of a blessing to the community around it because people have something nice to look at. And and we say, Hey, look, we respect you. Here's something that you would maybe would want to look at. Here's a beautiful addition to your community. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, So the temple in uh, Guatemala and Coban, Coban's kind of up in the highlands. Uh, Not a ton of people live out there. So this, I think this is more strategic placement for lesser populated parts of Guatemala. Uh, And the temple's not huge. It's only about 8,800 square feet. And it clearly follows the exact same template as the temples going up in Guam, Puerto Rico, Cape Verde. Um, nothing crazy new there. It's just a slightly different design from that. Uh, vaguely Spanish mission style, but not really. As I'm going to call it Baroque by any means. Uh, but it's good. No Moroni. And it's going to be a pretty dinky temple. 8,800 square feet is not large. Uh, that's a, uh, it's a small building. I didn't realize the temple going to Guam is like 6,700 square feet though. That's really tiny. Well, and didn't you note in the, in your twin article that, uh, it doesn't, it's not even going to have like the dual, um, ordinance room set up that yeah, it's the, just going to have one small ordinance room, one smaller ordinance room, which is a departure even from the Hinckley era mini temples. If you've been to any of those, and some of you probably live in those districts, uh, if memory serves, I've only been to Palmyra in terms of those, but it's still a progressive endowment i believe there's still two ordinance rooms and a celestial room i believe i believe i hope i'm not wrong but i'm pretty sure that's what it is uh and that's kind of what we've done for a long time now uh but now we're getting into a single room kind of like what we have in dc but dc's from a different era yeah yeah so uh ought to be and the japan of- one the japan one like you know i like how you noted in the uh twin article that you know the windows and the door very much reflect this this very okinawan feel and i and i yeah i like that i think it's really pretty so I, you guys have probably talked about this already a bit on twin but can we just talk real quickly about the no moroni thing like is this yes if if you do the talking and it's quick because i feel like i've beaten it to death so i'm interested just, to hear what you think go ahead i just curious like and again so I, i'm obviously a little behind on, on listening to other hosts on twim you know I, 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 you are, I only listen to my own shows exactly um yes, but uh 
Yeah, I mean, it's just I just think it's interesting because as much talking as President Nelson has done about the, I'm just going to say rebranding, even though that's not the word that we're supposed to use, but it's a rebranding. As much as he's explained about you know the thought process behind it with our new symbol, with uh, the emphasis on the correct name of the church, I never heard him say anything about moving away from Moroni as a symbol of something being a temple. And I, I really like Moroni in a temple. And not, I mean, and I guess maybe partly because it's tradition, but also it really, it makes you know that's a temple. You look at a building and it could be just like a really nice chapel or any church's building really. But then when you see Moroni on top, you're like, oh, that's a temple. So yeah, I don't know. I think- I mean, what, is there something, has he said anything or indicated any reason why we would be moving away from Moroni as even as just a symbol of, hey, this is what this building is? Um, no one knows for sure. It hasn't been consistent either in terms of which temple. Yeah, not every temple has, has have one in which don't even temples that president Nelson himself has announced. Of, we, we've tried to look to see if it's ones that like, cause there's temples that maybe are being built now and he'll dedicate, but they were announced or underway before he took over. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they'd retain a Moroni. But as far as I can tell, there's no, it's not a super clear thing yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's, because they're trying to move away from Moroni. I agree from branding perspective. Yeah, it's hard to miss what that building is. You know, I, th- I think you're going to be curious about it no matter what. If you see a building of the quality and craftsmanship of a temple. But at the same time, when you have a Moroni on it, that's an immediate identifier. Like, boom, this is a Latter-day Saint temple. Right. That's what we're dealing with here. So, I don't know. Yeah, because neither of these ones has have a Moroni. And I've been trying to log more and more which ones of his will have them and which ones won't. And I think maybe as time goes on, assuming we're blessed with president Nelson for a while longer, uh, we'll try to see if there's anything, anything we can take from that. Like, yeah. Cause no one knows. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm wondering if they ever will release a statement about that. I mean, maybe they well, will. It, it, it is worth, it is worth remembering though, that Moroni didn't really become kind of the norm on temples until probably the seventies. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, I know it's not required by any means, nor is it historically the norm. By that, I mean 1970s, folks, not 1870s. Yeah, because <laughs> right. I mean, well, the pioneer era temples of the church did not have a Moroni. The first Moroni was on Nauvoo. Like, the very first one was on Nauvoo, but he wasn't right. identified as Moroni and he was shaped. No, it was just the, the revelation angel, right? Yes, the revelation angel. That's sort of what Moroni's kind of been anyway. Right. Um, but Salt, Salt Lake got the statue of Moroni. That was a big deal. It was unique to Salt Lake. And then after the, the Salt Lake Temple was the fourth temple in Utah, the preceding ones didn't have it. And then I want to say the next temple after Salt Lake was those. They, they were the Solomon like temples, right? So I don't know which one was first. Oh, like Carston, Arizona, probably, and Mesa and Laie. They don't even have spires, so that's fine. And then I don't think you got another temple after that until Idaho Falls, which was put off by the war. And Idaho Falls didn't have a Moroni at first. Um, it doesn't. They, have. they were. They requested one. Temple districts apparently can request a Moroni hmm. if they want. I don't know if they can now, but uh, so it went to that. Can. But then you get into the fifties, though. Um, I don't believe the Bur- the London Temple didn't have a Moroni, but the Los Angeles Temple did have one from the gecko. And its Moroni is actually different from other Moronis. There's like nine different. Yeah, there's like nine different Moroni statues. Yeah, they they differ a little bit. So wait, does London still not have a Rona? I can't remember. I'm not. I'm not able. I can't picture it. I don't think London does. I think they added one to the temple in Switzerland. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Switzerland has one, but you're right. They might have added it later. Preston definitely has one up in the north. Preston Towers. It was built in the 90s. That's a right. pretty normal time. It was just taken 
mm. as a given, right? Right. I think I, I think I found a list one point. Let's see. Da, 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 da. I don't know. We seven temples. Seven temples of Hammeroni added since the, during renovations. Freiburg, Germany, Ogden, Utah, Provo, Utah, Sao Paulo, Tokyo, Bern, Switzerland, and London does have one now. So there you okay. go. There you go. Anyway. Yeah, so I'm with you. So it's cool to see them building this stuff and DA for Temple Designs coming up. Uh, let's see. Were there any other- what, one more quick uh, Temple note, I think, before we move on. Ah. Uh, so they, there was a, a note, in the again, in the Church News um, website or the newsroom website where they were they noted that there was the groundbreaking happened for the new upcoming Leighton Temple. Uh, sorry, Leighton Temple. And, Leighton, um, Leighton Temple, which is architecturally bleh. Eh, at least it's got a Moroni. I don't know. I, I um, believe it adequately represents the area. It's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, I've got family in Leighton. No, like, it's like, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, That's it's like fine. all it is. Yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's nothing. When, when you drive into Leighton, it actually says that, like, welcome to Leighton. It's fine. It's fine. Everything is fine. Um, schools, they're fine. <laughs> our Arctic Circle, it's fine. Um, so, meters is more I know Neaters is lovely. I like right, Neaters. Right. Continue. So anyway, so they did the groundbreaking and it noted in, that it wasn't one of these big groundbreakings, you know, where they invite local leaders and stuff like that because of everything going on. Again, that, that dang virus. Um, so it was a rel- relatively small groundbreaking ceremony, but what was great and what was noteworthy to us here at TWIM was that the picture that was included showed all these people sitting in like armchairs out on the it lawn, like they took them out of a church foyer. Yeah, it was like exactly like the the church foyer, or even maybe like the little stake offices waiting area. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. slightly well, nicer armchairs. Now that we know we can't have anything but pictures of Jesus in the foyers, they had to find a place to put all the furniture. And right. so they brought it. They brought it. Anyway, it's just super interesting, and, and you see the people socially distanced. Um, you know the chair. Maybe that's why they chose the chairs because they have to kind of be placed a little farther apart. <laughs> maybe. But uh, yeah, it's just so funny to see this like kind of like muddy-ish lawn with these uh, church foyer armchairs sitting on them. Like, uh, I guess they figured there's not a whole lot of us. Live it up. Bring up. Bring out the nice chairs. It's so funny looking. This photo just cracks me up. Yeah. Like what in history? I didn't think about that. <laughs> groundbreaking ever. If the chair size forced social distance, I guess I couldn't think about that angle. <laughs> There's a conference room when I worked at the State Department. There's a conference room. Uh, it's one of these classic ones where you can even like plug in a headset, you know, and get your translation and all that stuff. But I don't know why it was ever built this way. The the room between seats, uh, ladder for vertically, horizontally, however you want to say, it, in front of you is nil. I don't know. Like you literally can't even sit there because your knees are crunched up against another seat. I know it dates back to the fifties. This is an aside, but I just thought of that seeing this picture, and it's beyond me why anyone designed a building that way because, like, you literally cannot sit down in these chairs. Good job, State Department. So, some slight tweaks are happening with missionary and temple and family history work. This just uh, dropped, like, tonight, right before we recorded, if I'm not mistaken, Jared. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, we're still dissecting it a bit. Also, by the way, uh, we talk a lot about in the President Nelson era about how the gathering of Israel is the greatest challenge, the greatest cause, the things we're doing nowadays. That's kind of come up a lot more, which, by the way, in case you weren't aware, the church has the greatest subdomain, hopeofisrael.churchofjesuschrist.org. That's awesome. So visit that one. Um, 
this is this is a quick reminder, it seems, in a letter to stake presidents and bishops and others about the coordination and training for missionary and temple and family history work. The long and short of it, we already know that Elders Quorum and Relief Society presidents are, are to assign one of their counselors to be over missionary work and one of them to be over family history work. These counselors are supposed to work together on these things. I'd like to remind everyone this is not supposed to be the Elders Quorum calling the shots and the Relief Society is playing a supporting role, which I've seen. It's You work in tandem. But some updated language that I want to be clear that we're not wrong about, but it says now that under the priesthood keys of the stake president, the stake presidency and stake relief society presidency, rather than the bishop, are responsible for the instruction of elders quorum and ward relief society presidencies in their responsibilities for the work. Now, when I was an elders quorum president, I had lots of meetings with the stake presidency because that is a stake calling officially. Obviously, you work a lot with the bishop and kind of like do his will, but um I still think this is a change, if I'm not mistaken. This is this seems like they're taking this off the bishop's plate and reminding elders quorum presidents and Relief Society presidents that you are going to work with your state counterparts for guidance, for training, for all that stuff. Which I don't think is entirely I mean, I think it's kind of like like de facto the way that way that it's been, been handled, handled in the last year or so. Year but so, I think that it kind of formalized that language. It's like, no, really, like if you need training on this. Don't talk to the bishop. Go to the go to the state. The state. So I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting adjustment. Yeah. So there's that. Um, same training, and then the other the the other small thing to, that they added here though is that um, when they want to have correlation meeting, now called coordination discussion, it would have the usual actors: a ward mission leader, if called. The, the representatives from the Elders Quorum Presidency and the Relief Society Presidency, but also now they're including the uh, the presidency member of the oldest young women class and the assistant in the priest quorum. So they're involving the youth now officially, which I think is something a lot of wards have done. Yeah. But now they're a part of it for fun. So. Yeah, that's super interesting. I've never been part of a ward missionary correlation meeting that included youth, actual, like not like maybe youth leaders, but not youth representatives themselves. So I think, I think that's a good idea. I think that's cool. Yeah. So these are some minor changes, but I think this is a cool thing that they're doing here. Yeah. I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's anything else we're missing here. No, but there is some tangentially related missionary news. Uh, yeah. There was what, what do you got? some, uh, there was who, who released this info? Oh, it was from, I want to say it was from the census bureau from the, yep. The census bureau, uh, clarified how we should count missionaries in the census in 2020, which is interesting that this is coming out now because I don't know about you, Jeff, but I've already filled out my census. I did it a couple months ago when it, well, it was due in April. Yeah, when the thing came so. in the mail. So, uh, I, I but you know, as a poli sci major, I felt it was my duty to to enthusiastically fill out my census as soon as I got the the uh, notification. But yeah, so apparently they're just now setting out clarifications. I guess they're waiting for some people, maybe especially in Utah to finish filling out their census forms or maybe, so they, how, maybe people have delayed because they've been sending in queries about how to count their missionaries, but they, 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 especially now since, you know, everything's kind of upended. Some missionaries have sent, been sent back home or sent to other places that they you know weren't supposed to, they weren't originally called to be. And so people are, needed some extra guidance on how to count their missionaries for the census. So they, I, we don't need to read through all these guidelines, but they basically just said, Hey, 
this is how you should count it. I'll be interested to see how many people, or I would be interested to know how many people actually follow this guidance instead of just counting them as, hey, they, they're my son. They live here, counted in Utah or counted in Idaho or whatever. As a Californian who is well aware that his home state is probably going to lose a congressional district, this census, I would gladly give that 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 district to Utah to give Utah five. Okay. I I bequeath it unto you, Utah. Maybe that'll Utah maybe win. that'll give Devin the leg up he needs. Devin is going to win in Utah three, man. I don't know what you're thinking. I, I I'm all for it. I'm just saying, if there was an extra district somewhere in there, there might be they might be able to gerrymander a little Democratic enclave or something. <laughs> yeah, I think that Democratic enclave is the one, the one that Ben McAdams currently has. Yeah, uh, let's see here. Other administrative news in the church. Uh, they've organized new quorums of the 70. The first presidency has announced an increase in the number of quorums of the 70, adding four quorums for area 70s. Okay, not general authorities, area 70s to the existing eight quorums. If I'm checking my math, that means there will be 12 quorums of the 70. Uh, one and two are reserved for the general authorities, but three through 12 are now area authorities. Uh, I think the idea behind this is it says here it will enhance the functioning of the quorums, improve geographic alignment of the quorums, and enhance cultural and language similarities among quorum members. Now, remember, none of these people are general authorities. Area authority 70s have a lot of responsibilities, but they have a calling that is a lay calling similar to other callings you might have in your ward or branch. Okay. They have not given that up and are now men of the cloth completely right. uh, for the remainder of their career. I've always understood them as this sort of like the new, the sort of the intermediary between local unit leaders and general authorities. Like it kind of seems that way, huh? Like they're the ones who bring down all the stuff from North America, Northeast and say, guys, guys, I've always, it's gotta be an interesting gig being an area authority because i do feel like their role is not clearly defined in the eyes of the lay body politic of the church and uh now we're gonna have more quorums which presumably means even more of them of the actual members it's up to 12 quorums now isn't it if you count the, yes. the two general authority quorums yeah 12 quorums total so 10 of them are for the area authorities I do have to take the church news to task for saying the first and second quorums of the 70 <clears throat> are comprised of general authority 70s. They should. No, no, no. On. They comprise. They com- Come on, copy editors. Where are you at? I'm right here, man. Also, that's a weird thing because in recent years, they've stopped um, referring to the members of the first two quorums by which quorum they're apparently in. And they've just been called general authority 70s. Right. Even on the di- the chart that shows all the general authorities, you know, that comes with the ensign. Mm-hmm. It just says general authority 70s. So if they're still organized in separate quorums, that's effectively internal knowledge at this point. I couldn't even tell you if any of them are in the second quorum of the 70 well, right now. I mean, I have no idea. Maybe that, yeah, maybe that only exists on paper and on paper that we don't get to see. But isn't there also, if I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even within those two general authority quorums, there are differences, at least in administration. I, if I, if, Again, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I remember that uh, if you're in the first quorum of the 70 and you get called, you know, you get called to it, you will have tenure in that quorum until you turn 70, at which point you become emeritus. And then I thought that in the second quorum, it was a five-year term, right? A five-year, then become emeritus. You had five years to get promoted to get the, to get the <laughs> gig until you're 70. Otherwise, you're out. 
Right. So, so yeah, referring to all of them as general authority 70s kind of ignores that there is a, at least administratively, a difference in how long and how, how they keep their callings. I don't know. That's kind of, yeah, it is. Yeah, it was, it's like promotions in the military. Like, cause if, if for military officers, it's pretty rough. Like you've got so many years to advance and if you don't, you're just gone. Right. Like you could be going for general for being a colonel. And if you don't cut it, they say, well, see you later. It's been criticized because I think they lose a lot of good people because they just like right. don't have slots. Well, maybe this conversation we're having, the terms we're using about advancement and promotion, maybe that's partly why they stopped referring to Because <laughs> people were like, well, he's second quorum. You know, he's a little lower than- We don't take him seriously. He'll give like one conference talk right. before he disappears completely. Uh, wait, you, you sent a second quorum to our state conference? Come on, we, we merit at least a first quorum of the 70. I do need to get one former member of the second quorum, uh, C. Scott Grow. Everybody, if you remember C. Scott Grow, mm-hmm. greatest name in the world, right. he's a member of the Idaho House uh, of the Idaho State Senate now, and he's running for re-election. Oh, so I think we need to I think we need to get him on here just to talk to him and talk about his name because, like, it's a classic general authority thing. His middle name is Scott. Right. At some point, he decided to go by C. Scott Grow. Like as a choice. Right. And grow being and a verb, so, which harkens back to the old Dick and Jane books, right? Like, see Scott, grow. Grow, Scott. When your last, when your last name is a verb, that's uh, you run the, that's risky. It's risky business. No yeah. problem for Openshaw and Gillens. No, sir. No, sir. People just, I have a terrible last name. I apologize to my wife. We should have taken hers. Oh, mine too. Honestly. I mean, yeah. Kelsey, my wife, her, her maiden name is Shearer, which is just kind of hard to say because it's got those R's in a row. Um, you know, it's like that old uh, 30 Rock bit, the, the rural juror. The rural juror. Yeah. So, you know. Kelsey, <laughs> I'm a huge Kevin Grisham fan. Right. So, Shearer. So, she always had to spell that just because people were like, that's hard Shearer. to hear. And then she married somebody who, again, you always have to spell Gillens because everyone wants to stick an extra vowel in there. Um, I get a lot of Gillians. Um, or do they want to change that final I into an E or an A, Gillans or Gillans? Anyway, yeah, it's just hard. I have a name that you always have to spell out for people. Yeah, yeah. My wife's maiden name is Mathis, which is just strong. It's just a good, strong name. There's just one T in Mathis, right? It's not like Matthew. It's not Matthias. Right. Yeah, just just Mathis, which is a good, strong name. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry to her. I truly am. When she she paused when we filled out that marriage license, like, officially changed really her name. This? She was like, "Well, this is pretty fine." I really, like, yeah, this this is the deal. But if you're gonna be my woman, you gotta pay respect. Oh well, fun fact: Kelsey Boom. Kelsey's never legally changed her name. And uh, well, you should question her loyalty. So <laughs> BYU uh, and other Latter Day Saint colleges are actually turning down the fifty four million dollars from the CARES Act. The CARES Act was part of the large bill to provide relief to American people and institutions. Uh, and as far as institutions goes, that means it was money to go to call universities to help them. Well, and specifically uh, the also some of that would be earmarked to help out students who had, yes. had financial needs, right? So the church was earmarked to get all of this and the, the amount was large and there were many who criticized the church. Why would you take this huge sum of money? Why are you getting more than others? It's, it's a lot of stuff, but basically the rubric they use it uh, gives more money to universities that have married couples in them. And BYU, as you might expect, has a higher proportion of married students. Well, also, the, the entire sum of $54 million was supposed to be divided among BYU, Provo, Idaho, and Hawaii, right? It was for all yeah, three but, schools. 
well, and LDS, LDS Business College. You mean Ensign College? And I mean Ensign University or whatever they're called now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, whatever. yeah. So anyway, they were going to do this, but BYU. Oh, here's actually the breakdown. So BYU Provo was supposed to get 32 million, Idaho 18 million, BYU Hawaii two million dollars. It's a lot. It's a much smaller student body. So it is, but it's not like that much smaller than. I mean, what's the student body in Idaho? Uh, it's, I mean, it's big because they have that crazy rotating trimester system. There's a lot of students that attend that are on the ro- the roll. I there. guess so. You're okay. They have like twenty thousand. That's fair. Fine. Uh, anyway, and then uh, they but they've turned down the money. They just said we don't. We're good. We're good. They've lost money, but we're uh we're not going to take it. Right. Well, and and a lot of people are applauding this move from the church because I mean, and I think this probably is an echo of the recent fairly recent revelations of the, the, the large, large holdings that the, the church has. So a lot of people are applauding the move to turn down the CARES funding because basically what the church has said is we have the money to do this and we will take care of our students who are in need and we will take care of our own financial issues. And people are saying, good, yeah, th- that means this money. And the church even said, now this money can go to another university that needs it more than we do. Yeah, and I think good. I, yeah, I think that's a good move. Yeah, solid. Solid. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Solid as a rock. Solid as a rock. So, can we do something? Jared, it's your turn. This is called a segue. It's your turn. (laughs) I was going to say, can we do something completely different now? And we're not, I don't want to spend even a full minute on this, but. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to time you right now. You've got, you've got 57 seconds. So, Dan Peterson has, as we have mentioned, I think, actually, I think the last time I was on the show, the last time I. It was non, not an interview show. We talked about Dan Peterson's blog on Pathios and just how it's... I think you're my only co-host who remotely cares about the existence of Dan Peterson, so that's why I'd have... Well, I mean, I think he's an interesting person and he often has insights and or at least interesting things to say. But yeah, like he had a recent... 35 seconds. <laughs> he had a recent uh, post about uh, a record, a contemporary source about Joseph Smith performing a miraculous healing that was witnessed by a non-believing, non-LDS person, which is an interesting kind of story in itself. But what was so weird to me about his post is that like, you have to like scroll down through so much junk. I don't know if this is a Pathios issue or if it's a Dan Peterson issue, but like there was... It's a Dan Peterson issue. Okay. So there's the headline about Joseph Smith, you know, healing the miraculous healing, blah, blah, blah. And then you scroll down a little bit and then there was like this headline for a different article. And I was like, Oh, what was this like a bait and switch sort of thing? It's so confusing. And then there was an, a full abstract for that other article. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure. Dan Peterson doesn't know how the internet works. And then it's so confused. And then you scroll through like, and I was doing this on my phone. So maybe that was part of the issue too. But then I scrolled through like probably 10 inches of ads on my phone and finally, I got to the story, which was about two paragraphs long. <laughs> and it was just like, what? Please employ thyself an editor or a formatter or a web somebody who can like help you fix this. And that is what we have to say about Dan Peterson. Was that under a minute? Yeah. Uh, it was about a minute and a half. Oh, well. Well, let's, let's move on. That's okay. Here's another thing that came out from the church about behind the scenes, look at filming the Bicentennial Proclamation in the Sacred Grove. In case you don't know what I'm saying, I am referring to during General Conference when uh, President Nelson went to this pre-recorded video in the Sacred Grove and read the proclamation about the first vision, the one that we'll probably never talk about anymore, like the living Christ, because it's not about gender roles or something. So, uh, 
this is a it's a behind the scenes look at, at, at the filming of it um except it's not really a behind the scenes not like anyway it doesn't show them blocking the shots and like working with president nelson it's mostly just isn't it pretty much just president bingham and president jones yeah. of the relief society and primary just reminiscing about yeah. the experience and it was a short and very nice video and it, it includes their little testimonies about how special the experience was and how yeah you know it's how wonderful it is to have god speaking on earth still through modern revelation and things like that it's a nice video but in no way yeah, yeah. is it at all a behind the scenes video. so i don't know why it was tagged as such yeah it's weird like you said, but it's nice. Good video. Watch it. It's like it's, it's like per- three, it's like three minutes long. It's worth your. It time. is three minutes long. It's a nice little inspirational. It's sh- distraction. Barely it longer than a Weezer song. Everybody, you're fine. Right. If you want to destroy this behind the scenes video, no, that that's song not is five work. minutes long. So oh, sorry. Careful. I met like the Green Album Weezer when every song is like two minutes. Oh, yes. Anyway, we we could have a whole podcast where I could talk about the evolution of Weezer. That would be a very different discussion, we probably, should. which I don't think we want to get into right now. But what we could talk about is, uh, so there was a um, ABC4.com, one of the, the one of the local ABC affiliate, the local ABC affiliate for the Salt Lake area. In Utah, there was this interesting video interview that was posted. Um, what's his name? Douglas Jessup. Yes. But and before you get into this, can I let me speak to my confusion as one who doesn't tune into Utah's media market? Mm-hmm. Since the headline reads "Gay," I guess I'm giving some of this away. But gay member of the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square on Jessup's Journal. I didn't know that Jessup's Journal was a segment, and so I was like, "Do we like get a copy of Craig Jessup's Journal?" the former director of the Tabernacle Choir. Is there something about like gay members at Craig Jessup's journal? Is this going to be some great breaking news like Craig Jessup? Like we find out why he quit in the first place. No, no. it's not about that at all. It's I was yeah, Jessup's out. journal. I, I, it's funny. Cause like it is a good segment and I, it, it was really interesting. I, I did sit and watch it and listen to the interview and it was pretty good. I mean, especially, you know, everything that the, this, I can't, uh, we should know. I don't want to just call him the gay member. Uh, his name is Alex. It's like refusing to name the DC football team. Right. Alex, <laughs> it's like Alex Lindstrom, uh, who is the subject of the interview. He had some really great things to say, but uh, my main takeaway, not the main takeaway, but one of my takeaways that just kept on sticking with me. Did, did you, did you even look at the, the video at all? Jeff? Well, I like how Jessup wears a bowler hat. And yeah. That was kind of my, like, and he even at the end of the video, he gives, like, he's giving his little thank yous and like, credits and he talks about like the the haberdashery in the salt lake area that provided his outfit i was like oh so it was on purpose because he's wearing like this like kind of pioneer era looking outfit with a vest and a collarless shirt and this bowler cap and i'm like huh is this a costume or is this how mr jessup dresses and apparently it's how he dresses it's um it's a really interesting um quirk i will say but uh Beyond the quirk and also the questionable interviewing skills of Mr. Jessup, I don't know. <laughs> he talks about how he's been interviewing since he was like 12 years old. And I was like, oh, well, you'd think at some point you would have uh, taken a class in it or something. <laughs> I'm sorry. And also getting the church's name spelled correctly or right. hyphenated and capitalized correctly. Anyway, beyond that, everything right. that Alex had to say was was really endearing. He, he just seems like a really nice person. And he talked about his experience being gay not only a gay member active gay member of the church but it being an active gay member of the tabernacle choir at temple square 
Um, and yeah, it's a, it's worth your time, but just try not to be distracted by Jessup's get up and uh, listen to uh, to what Alex has to say. And it's like a, he bears a nice little testimony and he talks a little bit about, um, you know, what, what his experience is like and uh, had even had some recommendations for people of how, how they can interact with and, you know, love people who are uh, gay and members of the church and I, I just I know it's worth listening to him. The only the one the the main criticism I would have is that uh, Jessup at one point used the phrase "struggling with same sex attraction," which uh, is not really I think it's a, a lifestyle. You see, yeah. Anyway, it's a I, lifestyle. Just you know to to label all of uh, our gay brothers and sisters as people who struggle. I I, I don't think that's uh, the best way to envision other people and who is this jessup fool and why didn't craig jessup interview him instead back to my original point this should be craig jessup interviewing him right i would watch that in a heartbeat uh, that would have made a lot more sense oh man oh well well i'm glad you dug that up either way that's very interesting uh real quick you know, we've covered the story i believe some time ago about timothy james hallows a former bishop in the church well, he pled not guilty on Friday on charges of possessing child pornography. Isn't that nice? He was arrested last October on eight counts of sexual exploitation of a minor and officially charged all now on May 8th. So it took a little bit of time because that's what our legal system does. Um, he admitted to distributing images of child sex abuse on Skype and reportedly admitted to owning more than 100 images of this child porn. So I don't know why he's like, yeah, not guilty, but okay. Uh, and I think it's especially bad, of course, because he's been a bishop. And it says right here, he holds a special position of trust in the community as a bishop in Kaysville. I, I think, wasn't he actually, I forgot, was he serving as a bishop when he was arrested? Or was it just that he's a former bishop? I can't I don't remember. Rem- I don't remember. I'm sorry. To but yeah, it was a weird thing where he yeah publicly admitted to certain things, but then pled not guilty to other. I don't know. I don't understand. Messed up story. Let's. Uh, at least he's off the streets. Yep. And the computer. So. so should we end with something slightly more positive? Yes. So this is super interesting. So many of you may be familiar with the blog Mormon Women Stand. Oh, I love them so much. So quick history lesson. As I remember it, this the the Mormon Women Stand movement. Uh, started a few years ago, and it was in. They they said it was not in response to the ordained women movement, but it, yeah, but it clearly uh-huh, yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, and they even got there was a lot of there was a lot of rankling among the ordained women uh, sympathizers and everything because as much as they had tried and tried to get any kind of interview or meeting with anybody from Salt Lake, uh, they were always rebuffed or ignored, and the Mormon women stand, they had a couple of representatives where they actually had a nice luncheon <laughs> with several people from the church office building, I, I, including, I believe if, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it was Catherine Skaggs or somebody else, but there's been an article written there in the past, for example, that essentially argued that politically liberal members of the church are er- therefore liberal in the bad way with right. their own personal discipleship right. in that they, they pick and choose. They don't take it seriously, blah, blah, blah. So I've had some, 
real thumbs up moments with Mormon women stand. But you said this was positive, Jared. Right. Well, so please. Ish. So I mean, this I can't remember who which uh, which of the Mormon women who stand wrote this one, but um, it was uh, it is a post called "I Don't Miss Church." Which is super interesting coming out of uh, the Mormon Women's Stand, like as you noted, a very, very conservative uh, blog and quote unquote movement within the church. Uh, but then as you read into it, she talks as she talks about not missing church. It's all it's all about, you know, the value of, you know, having more time to study the scriptures and the wisdom of our leaders in, you know, moving us to home centered, you know, church supported learning and things like that. So I mean it's not about not missing church. She says, you know, she does miss getting together and seeing people and having that community, et cetera, et cetera. But that in the end, you know, she still feels close to God and we can all still feel close to God. It's sort of, this supposed to be this nice heartwarming, um, church is good, but we don't need it necessarily for our, you know, to, to still stay close to God, which I can agree with, but there were a couple yeah. of points that I think she start. She kind of oversold, I, not even kind of, I would, I say she is definitely, I think she misses some important doctrine. I want to read quickly one of her short paragraphs. She says, this is towards the end. She says, though public worshiping is important, it is the personal religious practices, the reading of scriptures, personal prayers, and now worshiping at home and taking the reins of our and our family's gospel study that creates true conversion. Conversion is not a group experience. It is a personal private journey experienced in the quiet of our homes, bedrooms, closets, and hearts. And I think that I I will testify that that is a gross overstatement. Yes, conversion has to be a personal thing. It has to happen inside your heart. But we have seen in the scriptures, in the temple, in, in, in many, many teachings in fact, she even quotes, she gives a reference to Mosiah 18, but towards the end of the chapter, <laughs> earlier on, uh, in, or later, I'm sorry, towards the end of the article, but completely skips all this stuff in Mosiah 18 about how interdependent we are on one another, that that a, a central part of our covenant is to bind with one another, to bear each other's burdens, to mourn with those that mourn. Like, true conversion is part personal, but it's also part communal. Like, we can't keep our covenants if there is no communal body of Christ. In fact, going to Paul, and you always call me out for quoting the apostle or referencing the apostle Paul, but, you know, he, his, his, you know, in, in Corinthians, first Corinthians, his whole point was we can't say as one part of the body of Christ, I don't have need of this other part. Like it's this, this flies in the face of everything of all the communitarian aspects of our gospel, which are many, Anyway, I just I I I just wish she wouldn't have been so dismissive of our need for one another because that's half the point of this gospel is that Christ does save us and change us individually, but he also saves and changes us collectively as a whole and we need each other to have the true gospel experience that Christ intends for us. So, anyway, yeah. I think she right, missed the Bethany. boat. Bethany Packard, who's absolutely in love with her wonderful husband, Chad. Yeah. Where did you find that? I don't even know. This is about the author. Oh, there it is. Yeah. She loves Chad. Actually, it surprises me because they seem, he seems too old. Chad is not like a 60 year old guy's name, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. like we are the Chad generation. That's true. Yeah. I think. Well, anyways, I'm glad they served as a senior couple in Russia. She said she's been a missionary three times over. They've served missions. That's great. 
but I get what you're saying. Anyway, so I I, I, think I applaud correct. her for embracing home church and finding all the ways that she can to, you know, not get let it let it get her down. But at the same time, let's not be so dismissive of our need for one another. This is a uh, very much we, if Christ has taught us anything, it's that we need each other as much as we need ourselves. So anyway, yeah, I've been I've been mixed. I, we need to wind down the show, but personally, like I don't know. Maybe it's just that we've been apart for so long. Like I've I've been thinking about like do I have I missed my like word interaction a ton? I don't know if I have. I don't know. I'm I'm we I'm not sure where I am on this right now. So we just we, personally we definitely have so we there um that's because our old word there is amazing. It is and, you, and yeah you know that I, I still it's been th- almost three years since I three years it has been three years since we were out of that word three and a half years and we still miss that word. I mean come on yeah. no as you should so we so we um one of the local neighborhoods uh um in our word boundaries uh has gotten hit pretty hard disproportionately hard if you remember the arlandria area and as you oh, yeah. remember it's it's much lower income by and large yeah. it's also largely made up of immigrants yes um and a lot of them have just been really devastated by the, they've had a much higher rate of infection and so um somebody in the community organized a drive to collect you know non-perishable foodstuffs as well as like cleaning supplies that are much needed for disinfecting and things like that. And our ward, um, Amy, our, our, our Relief Society president uh, really took the reins and said, Hey, we are going to be a part of this. And so uh, on Saturday, the church was very temporarily kind of opened up, at least in the parking lot for people to come and drop off their, our donations so Kelsey and I, we went and brought uh, just a few things that we picked up at Target to, to, to throw in our little widow's mite of contributions. And it was funny because there were probably maybe a dozen people there. And we were just going to drop everything off and then go away. But we're all standing outside. We're all wearing masks. We're all standing at least six feet apart from each other. And we probably stood there and just talked with each other for like 45 minutes because it was just so good to see people. And we missed them and we did, I think we didn't really realize how much we missed them, but it was like, we didn't want to leave because we had missed that interaction so much with these people that we just really love and feel close to. And like you said, I mean, it's hard not to with Alexandria first word, but I don't know. Yeah. It made me realize like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to when we can safely and confidently go back to church together because I really like spending time with these people. Well, that's a good note to end on everybody. We hope you get back safely. Uh, sincerely, if you have already gone back to church or if your ward stake, whatever, is is getting into it you know, this weekend, we would love to hear your stories about it, either uh, on the post here with this this episode on Facebook, you know, facebook.com slash This Weekend Mormons, um, or shoot us an email, contact at thisweekendmormons.com. I would love to hear how this is going in real life. We talk about it a lot in the abstract on here. Uh, but I'm very curious how this actually plays out for all of you. So please let us know. That'd be terrific. And join us, of course, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all those places mentioned. Join Patreon if you like. I will call you out. I will name drop you on the show Ooh. if you sign up on Patreon to pledge a dollar a month. That's quite a show. carrot you're dangling there. Yes, I know. I know. You can say you were mentioned by the fifth most famous podcaster about Mormon news <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> I mean, what else do you need, everybody? But seriously, thanks for tuning in. We can't do it without you, and we really appreciate you being a part of it. Jared, as always, very much a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, everybody, that's going to be it. We'll talk to you next week when another edition of This Week in Mormons comes at you. Until then, be safe. 
be sanitary, and be well, be holy, and be happy. Wear a mask. And that. <laughs>